and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, an ongoing conversation about public policy, governance, and global issues. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and joining us today is New York Times columnist David Brooks. He's here at the Kennedy School to deliver Shorenstein Center's Theodore H. White Lecture on Press and Politics. David, welcome to the PolicyCast. Good to be with you. So, Uh, You've argued that institutions and organizations have been responding to the changing demographics of the United States for the last 60 years, but our government has lagged behind. Has the 2012 election changed that, or is it more of a harbinger of what's to come? I guess I'd say it's a a bit of both. Uh, You know, the, the big shifts which everybody's pointing to are these big demographic shifts that are happening in the election. The most obvious is the shift away from white voters. White voters were 88% of the electorate when Reagan was elected. Now they're 72%, so parties have to adapt. The second and more subtle shifts are having to do with change in family structure. So we now have a lot more single people, uh, a lot more divorced people, a lot more retirees. And then finally, economic shifts. Uh, we're not really all in the same economy anymore. Uh, depending on your education levels, you're in different economies. And so when Mitt Romney said, I'm gonna improve the climate for business, a lot of people said, well, that's fine, but it's not going to help me. Whereas in the old days, if you were in one economy, if business was improved, they were improved. And so these are all the big transitional shifts I see that were exemplified by this election. Uh, and I would say the Democratic Party, obviously demographically, has done a much better job of reaching out to a lot of these groups, to minorities, to Asian Americans, singles. And so mostly the, the onus is on the Republican Party. Uh, to shift and to catch up to the demographic changes. The uh, Latino vote during the election was widely in Obama's favor. There was a large margin. Uh, does the Democratic, would it be safe for the Democratic Party to rely on that kind of voting block in the future? Or is it dependent on things like immigration reform? I mean, if they don't pass immigration reform, are they still the party for Latinos? Yeah, I, I uh, think immigration reforms is important to Latinos and to a lot of uh, groups. But, you know, people are still, they have their ethnic issues, but they have their basic economic issues uh, and foreign policy issues. So to me, the Democratic Party's got some big challenges. Uh, among them, how to create some growth. We've got a gradually slowing economy, uh, structurally slowing. And how do you create growth in a, an aging society? That's a huge problem. There's a gigantic debt problem. Uh, And so I would say immigration is a piece of building a majority coalition, but it's a small piece solving the bigger problems of economic growth, debt, some other things. Uh, It's the normal politics. Not It's always a mistake to look at it strictly as ethnic politics. So you mentioned the debt. Uh, One of the central issues of the campaign was not just the economy, but how to solve the deficit and the debt. President Obama campaigned on the promise of raising taxes on those who make over $250,000 a year. Uh, Is that something that he's actually capable of doing with a Republican Congress? Uh, We'll see. I I would bet he probably would get that through in some form. I'm not sure he'll get the rates back up to 39 where they were, but 38 or 37 with some spending reforms is doable. The problem is even if he got it back up to 39, that would cover maybe a tenth of our deficit. Uh, it really doesn't get you all that far. And so if you're serious about getting the debt under control, first the deficit in the short term and then the debt in the long term, you've just got to do much more and basically got to tackle Medicare. Uh, and if he's not willing to do that, um, then all the rest is sort of just um, marginal 
from what you've seen so far in his first four years, do you think he does have the ability to come to some kind of consensus on on the greater issue of uh, you know tax reform? Uh, no, <laughs> I really, I, I mean, it's possible, and I, I think he notionally he'd like to do it, uh, but whether he is able to build a coalition uh, the way Ronald Reagan did, um, I'm a little dubious, in part because the Republicans are more recalcitrant, in part because he's just not as good at uh, dealing with Congress as Reagan and some past presidents were. He's aloof from them, he's distant from them, he doesn't feel the need to be close to them, and without uh, some sense of personal trust, I just think it's hard to govern. Uh, and so I'm a little dubious. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure he's totally committed to tax reform. He talked a lot about it on the campaign, but I certainly spoke with him and um, many people in his administration who are not that uh, thrilled with the idea of tax reform. They don't think it yields much in the way of economic growth. Uh, and so they, their passion was certainly not in it. So many would argue that uh, Obama has governed as something of a Burkean president. Mm. Um, maybe uh, his more liberal supporters would uh, say that's his uh, downfall. Mm. Um, what do you think? Do you think he's governed as a, you know in the Burkean mold, or do you think uh, not? <laughs> yeah, I would say maybe in foreign policy he has, um, sort of with a tragic sense of how little you can often do and the need to uh, proceed cautiously and prudently. I really don't think so on the domestic front. Uh, I think he's grown uh, governed as sort of a gradualist technocrat. And so he doesn't move fast, usually, with the exception of maybe healthcare, <coughs> but he does place tremendous faith in the power of central planners to make decisions about how to control Medicare costs, about how to regulate uh, the uh, financial services industry, about how to regulate large parts of American life. So he has much more faith in that if you get the smartest 12 people in the country around a room, they can design a program to solve a problem. That's not really the Burkean tradition. Burke was much more modest about our ability to plan complex systems. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, NYU professor Jay Rosen has uh, he's talked about a distinction in the Republican Party, um, not so much between people who are right and far right, but but by what he calls uh, reality-based Republicans mm -hmm. and Republicans yeah. who believe in things like uh, Obama was born in Kenya. Um, do you think that, I, I guess uh, former Bush speechwriter David Frum has echoed those mm -hmm. those concerns. Do you think that is true and or, or is it even helpful? Um, and if so, what's the result? Yeah, I'm not sure it really explains much. Um, uh, there are people in both parties who have no fantastic notions that make them feel good. There are a lot of Democrats who thought oh, Bush started the war in Iraq so he, because of the oil companies wanted it. I regard that as similarly uh, weird and conspiratorial. Basically, most people have a legitimate point of view. Uh, and they're not trying to escape reality. The Tea Party had a legitimate point of view that America became wealthy with a certain uh, style of government, which was very limited. Uh, great dependence on individualism and personal responsibility. And uh, I don't always, I think the times have changed and you got to change with them, but I certainly don't think they um, uh, are just wackos. Uh, so uh, I think they have a legitimate point of view. And so I, I don't think it's really helpful to distinguish between people who can face reality and people who can't, since none of us actually do it very often. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned the Tea Party 
what's the what's the future for the Tea Party after this election? It seemed like they hit a high in 2010 and maybe not so much in in this this mm-hmm. cycle. Do they pick up again in an off in a midterm election where there you know is is a smaller turnout and that kind of thing? Does that? Yeah. Well, I think that will probably happen. Uh, you know, the lesson is smaller turnouts help Republicans. Their voters are just more committed, more likely to actually show up without the vast mobilization effort that the Obama campaign turned out. Um, so they'll be back. The country is still pretty hostile to government. Uh, and so the Tea Party, we may not get them in the same form, the same sort of militant form they were in in t- 2010. But those people are permanent voters. And frankly, they were never that new a phenomenon. They were, I think, traditional Republican voters who just got organized in a slightly different way in 2010. You mentioned uh, in your talk, the Theodore H. White lecture, um, that Republicans uh, or that ended up as Tea Partiers, um, they tended to sometimes associate with themselves uh, apart from the Republican Party um, because they saw the Republican Party kind of running away from them. Um, do you think that there is uh, any kind of split in the Republican Party, or is that kind of healed now that uh, you know there's, a, a, I guess, a, a somebody to you know rally against? Yeah, I, I think there are splits, less, fewer splits than uh, in previous years. So there used to be a real split between the Rockefeller Republicans and the Goldwater Republicans, uh, even the Bush Republicans and the Reagan Republicans. Now I don't think there are really that many diverse splits. Um, the moderate wing of the party is seriously diminished. Uh, so there are different attitudes about how loyal you'll be to the party, how disillusioned you are with Washington. But uh, basically the party is very unified. The two parties are more unified mm-hmm. than they have been through most of our history. And so I don't think the splits are really the the main story in politics these days. It's mostly the polarization and the attitude about people who don't affiliate with either party. What do they actually believe? Uh, and those people are more of a mystery. Uh, some of them are closet Republicans or closet Democrats. Some are genuinely moderates. Some are independents but not moderates. There's a lot more complexity in the middle there. Mm-hmm. Now, you t- we talked about demographics before <coughs> and specifically um, how Republicans may have to react to them. Mm-hmm. What about Democrats? How, how do Democrats have to shift their thinking to respond to you know what's what's going on these changes not just demographics but like you said the household shifts and uh, and uh, economic theory I guess shifts yeah I, if I were a Democrat I wouldn't want to give up on working class the white working class which they basically did this last election um, I do think you um, it's hard to give up on that large group just politically it's also morally and nationally wrong to give up on, you know, people living in, um, you know, Indiana um, and West Virginia. The uh, Obama did abysmally in West Virginia, to say. And so those are people, former coal miners, some current coal miners, um, other groups who are working in mills and factories and <coughs> increasingly warehouses. Um, I just think it's a huge mistake to give up on, on those people. And if you deliver the economic goods, you can win the back. It's not like it's... I think especially as culture war issues begin to lose some of their salience. So you don't sound uh, all that optimistic <coughs> on uh, pr- the president's second term, mm-hmm. uh, at least on bringing together a deal on the debt. Um, are there other places where you see consensus forming or at least uh, opportunity for consensus? I guess the three I'd mention were would be immigration reform, where there's certainly an opportunity. They're not yet there yet, but 
certainly an opportunity, and that would be great if we could keep some of the higher skilled people here and give some of the 12 million who are here a path to citizenship. Uh, second, education reform. Uh, that's one of the bright spots of the Obama administration. I, I'd say there's a consensus there. Uh, promote that agenda. Uh, and then finally, foreign affairs. I think we're in a period of foreign affairs consensus. And the Middle East uh, will never go away. It seems no president can escape it. And so uh, I think you know he can have some opportunities to forge an American foreign policy in an age of the Arab Spring and try to get the Arab Spring uh, back in a more amenable shape to uh, America and the world. Well, thank you so much for being on the PolicyCast today. Appreciate your coming on. Oh, thank you. You've been listening to PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. More information can be found at hkspolicycast.org.